yeah, like it's just a very immaculately made movie for a story that pisses me off. <laughs> Hello everyone, my name is Jason Ramirez and welcome to another episode of the Hit List Podcast, a podcast where me and a guest cross off films from our watch list and discuss them. This is season six, episode eight, and today I'm joined by a returning guest and fellow cinephile, Zachiel Marsh. Welcome, Zachiel. Thank you so much for being back on the show. Thank you for having me. Really happy to be here. So before we get started, I have two questions for you, little icebreakers. My first question for you is, um, what are your four favorite films? That's an impossible question. <laughs> um, yo, that's really tough. If I had to pick just like top of mind, like going in as blind as possible, um, I think it It's a Wonderful Life is definitely up there. Mm -hmm. I think Do the Right Thing okay. is pretty fantastic. I really love this movie called Brief Encounter. It sounds um, very familiar. It's so good. It is like an amazing movie. And then fourth, shoot, that's tough. Maybe Before Sunset. Yo. I really, really love Hold Before up. Sunset. Give me one second. Yeah? This just came in the mail yesterday. <laughs> Yo. The half off uh, Criterion Collection sale. Criterion? Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. I, I love all those movies so much. Actually, funny thing, I still haven't seen before Midnight, though. Really? I, I'm holding off on it. I, I'm trying to... I need to get to a stage in my life where I'll let it devastate me more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it's already devastating as it is. Like, I don't think it's like a bad, uh, a sad ending or a happy ending. It's just like an ending, you know? It is what it is. It is yeah. what it is. Exactly. And so... When I the reason I put it on um I watched it for like the podcast was because of your recommendation uh, <laughs> that you gave, and I was like okay might as well. And then my guest she said can we watch before sunrise? I'm like you know what let's just watch the whole trilogy, and I fell in love with it. And then I was so deeply affected by the ending. I was like damn I can't watch it again not for a while. So damn that's and, tough. Now I'm scared. <laughs> now I'm re now I'm gonna rewatch it like. That those movies are the reason why I like Ethan Hawke a lot more than I did before. Before I was like on the fence with him, but now I'm like, okay, I like you more. <laughs> Yo, you need to watch uh, First Reformed, and then you you're gonna be the, an Ethan Hawke guy by the <laughs> end of that. It was funny. It's like I just saw the Black Phone too. I really like that one. It's a, he's good in that. He's very yeah. good in that. Yeah. I think it's only fair that I I do my four favorite, but like I was prepared yes, for please. this question. I want to hear him. I was prepared for this question, so it's gonna come off easier. Okay, so. Since I was a kid, I always loved Rush Hour. Mm. It's just really good. Uh, the Sword of Doom, which I saw for the podcast, and it's actually my wallpaper. The, the poster is my wallpaper. Um, I haven't even heard of that one. Yeah, oh, I think you'll like it. It's a old samurai movie uh, from 1950s or whatever. And Damn. basically, it's about like just like a really evil guy um, who's a really good samurai, and he pisses off a lot of people <laughs> because he's... <laughs> He's a he's a dick basically, and he kills people. Like he'd be like, "Oh, technically, I was allowed to." Like, well, you didn't have to kill him, <laughs> you know. Like, uh, Whatever, say my code, yo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, paprika, I really love paprika. Like, I'm sure That's if a I good pick. when I was 14, I saw Inception in the theaters, right? And 
if I had seen Paprika instead of Inception, I would become an animator instead of a like a filmmaker. I'm very sure. Like even now, I'm like we deciding maybe you should get into animation. This final one is the one I have pondered over for years. But like I could definitely say, if I only see one movie, one movie again for the rest of my life, and not get tired, is The Prince of Egypt. I've loved That's that movie. That's a good one. That's a good pick. Since I was a kid, I've watched that movie, like, since I was seven or whatever. It was, like, the one VHS we had, right? And we'd always watch it. I've mentioned this before in the podcast where we used to have, like, a TV and VHS player in our uh, minivan. And we only had, like, two VHS tapes that we'd always take with us. It was Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, and The Prince of Egypt. <laughs> and the only way I could really recognize the concept of time is through, like, how many times would I watch Prince of Egypt before we eventually get there? So like Damn. my dad, my dad figured this out like, uh, oh, okay, AJ, it'd be like three hours to get there, and I'm like, what? How much is that? Like, I oh, like two Prince of Egypts. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite time metric. It goes minutes, hours, princes of Egypt. Like... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I love that movie. All right, and final question, because I did say two questions. What's something about you that people would be surprised to know? Something about me, people would be surprised to know. I don't think I'm that surprising a guy. Um, <laughs> I, um, oh, actually, I got a good one. Okay. I can read tarot cards, I'm really good Whoa. at it. I'm like kind of psychic. I've been doing it for four years now. Whoa, okay, so even before the whole TikTok trend, yeah, I've been on this. Oh man, like, do you have like a tarot card? Like, like. I have my own, I have my own deck. Oh my God. You're, you're ready. <laughs> I have them on me at all times. I like just bring them out. Like my friends ask me to do them all the time and I'm good at it too. I've predicted breakups. I, broke, I predicted new jobs. I predicted people Hold moving. On. I'm good. I'm good. Real quick, because Yo. I did mention this. I'm trying to replace Jimmy Fallon. Within five years, can we do that right now? Can we do? Can we read something right now? Is that too much to ask for? Just before Yo, we get started. So like, <laughs> I mean, we can try. We can try. I've never done it over Zoom. So, so what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to imbue the cards with your energy and stuff. So okay. it's like, okay, we can. Sure. We can do a, a quick, quick one. <laughs> I usually do like a full 20-minute session with someone. I, oh, wow. It's it's actually like a full like... I do <laughs> like the whole 10-card Celtic cross. Okay. Um, which is like a very specific, powerful uh, like reading. But I can just give you a pretty easy like beginning, middle, end. Okay. Past, present, future, three-card reading. Let's see. Let's imbue, try. Imbue, imbue yourself with the cards. Like, give okay. give them the, your energy right now. Okay, hold on. I'm getting it. Mm, um. Wait. Um, okay, okay. Okay, okay. Are, are you imbued? Uh, I think I've imbued. All right, let's do... I'm just going to draw top three from the top of the deck. Right? Okay. For You're... your past, you have... The High Priestess, it's one of the major arcanas. For your present, you have the Five of Pentacles. Mm -hmm. And for your future, you have the Tower, right? So 
the high peachess she is one of the she represents the past you know she represents like diplomacy learning like basically the ideas of like subtle quiet growth you know mm-hmm. five of pentacles represents like this idea of like um like grinding sort of it represents <laughs> like specifically in like a monetary sense mm-hmm. um pentacles are usually associated with money it's basically this idea that you're growing you are hunkering down battering down the hatches now for abundance later on and then the tower is actually one of the most powerful cards in the entire deck it represents oh. rapid and insane amounts of change and this is in your future card so you, you, you have a first, big folks. big change coming your way apparently oh man hopefully it's a good one <laughs> i well yo i just read what the cards say i ain't gonna say <laughs> okay all right with with that in mind a little impromptu tarot card reading let's get towards the topic of today's podcast today we'll be discussing a clockwork orange a clockwork orange is a 1971 dystopian crime film adapted produced and directed by stanley kubrick based on anthony burgess's 1962 novel of the same name Alex is a charismatic antisocial delinquent whose interests include classical music, especially Beethoven, committing rape, theft, and ultraviolence. He leads a small gang of thugs, Pete, Georgie, and Dim, whom he calls his droogs. The film chronicles the horrific crime spree of his gang, his capture, and attempted rehabilitation via an experimental psychological conditioning technique promoted by the Minister of the Interior. This film was on Zachiel's list. Zachiel, why was this movie on your list? Okay, so... For a few reasons. One, A Clockwork Orange is considered one of just those classic movies. Like, if you look up lists of best movies of all time, this one pops up all the time. It's very frequent. This is a very well-loved movie. This is a film directed by Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick is a director. I haven't seen all of his stuff. Like, but I have seen a good chunk. And, like, he's just considered one of the all-time goats. And I just really wanted to get a better sense of what he was doing. Like, just see one of his classics, you know? Gotcha. I will say it wasn't necessarily on my list, but I've always been curious about it because I've seen, like, the poster almost everywhere. And Mm -hmm. I remember the controversy of when Alex and the Droogs were included in the background of Space Jam 2. And I didn't know the context of the film, so I was like, why are people so upset about this? And then I saw the now movie. Like, watched the, this film, the first five minutes. <laughs> it's so ludicrous. Like they removed Peppa Le Pew because they considered it creepy, but they included a fucking rapist gang like, in the in Yo, the background. That is really the, that is the fact honestly, that these guys are in Space Jam Two is baffling. Like I don't understand the logic behind that in the slightest. Like. It's Ugh. so bewildering. Like, who was in? Who's in charge of that? I really, I want to talk to him. I really want to talk to him. What was? Be- I'm so curious who like greenlit that. Yeah. Anyway, they're like, this movie made a lot of money. And I'm like, <laughs> I guess. Have you seen it? Obviously not, because what the fuck? <laughs> um, so, first things first. What did you think? So I feel I'm a little disappointed because like it's Kubrick. <laughs> Yeah, it's Kubrick. This is like, it's always disappointing when someone shows you a classic and you get it, but you don't get it. Like, I don't 
really particularly like this movie very much. And it's definitely my least favorite of the Kubrick movies I've seen. Honestly, it's probably one of my least favorite classics in Mm -hmm. a long time. I There's some things it does very, very well. And there's some things that really rub me the wrong way. How about you? I feel the same way. This is the second film I've watched for this podcast for this season. First one being Eyes Wide Shut. And this one... Clockwork Orange and I didn't like watch Kubrick films until like mu- like a few years ago. The first one I saw was The Shining, which I was like pretty okay with it. I liked it, but like Shining's I didn't think it was very good. Yeah, yeah, I liked it, but I wasn't like too into it. But like I liked it, so I just always wanted to see what was the hype around Stan Kubrick because people revere him, like they say he's like a genius, or whatever. And Tom Cruise and Natalie Nicole Kidman like practically like postulated themselves so that they could be in his final film. They didn't know it was going to be his final film, but like they basically like had a contract so that they would, they would be done with the film once he thinks the film is done. So that's the kind of like, how do you say the praise he had around him while he was alive. So I wanted to like, and I also read this biography, not his biography, but like his archive, the Stanley Kubrick archive, which is like a, a thick red book. And I, I read like his history of like, his upbringing, like he started out in photography, photojournalism. His real interest was in getting to film. So he would always like go above and beyond improving his craft so that he could eventually like do film. And I, re- I respect that. I respect anyone who, who starts out that way. But man, I was really disappointed. It, you know how long it took me to watch this movie? Because like, we, we, it took me like across a month to watch this movie. Because I got the DVD from the library, right? Watched the first half, and I was like, okay. And then, like, we had to reschedule our, our recording. I'm like, okay, I can watch it later, like, later this week. I didn't feel like watching it again. It's been like, I had to, like, no. I had to finish it. So, like, I just rewatched it this past weekend, like, on Sunday, like, just yesterday. I just finished watching it. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I'm not a fan. And, I'm, yeah, yeah. But what do you think it does do well? Because you mentioned there are things done oh. well. So, okay, Kubrick knows how to use a camera. This movie yes. looks good. There exactly. are so many iconic shots in this movie. There's so many, like, specific scenes, and, like, the visuals of this movie is really awesome. J- the color scheme is this weird mix between, like, very brutalist, almost, architecture, where it's very, like, cold and concrete. But then also there's, like, these weird um, splashes of like color and like mm-hmm. really intricate art. It's like a really interesting look. The production design is fantastic. All these sets look great. All these props look great. These costumes are so iconic that they got into Space Jam too. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> like this movie has such a unique look. This movie has such a unique style. And it's shot in a way that is just so nice and so pretty like whatever kubrick is going for in a specific scene he accomplishes it like the camera moves in a good way the camera is like held in like ways that like in scenes where he wants to make you uncomfortable Mm -hmm. he very much accomplishes that in scenes where he wants to sort of show like the depravity what's going on he gets that he like 
it's just it looked like as a film like as like a technical exercise right this movie is phenomenal it's it there's almost nothing even nowadays that looks quite like this mm-hmm. and I, like that's great i think the the way they use the music in the movie and the way they use their score i think is really fun really interesting fun's not the right word <laughs> um, but, um, music is a big part of this movie and the score is a big part of this movie and the uh, disparity between this very classical high art music with this debauchery is like really you would think you, you would get tired of it at one point but I never quite did it gives like a, a lot of pomp to what's going on yeah like it's just a very immaculately made movie for a story that pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much exactly what I was thinking too. And especially with the music, like there are parts where like I kind of like laughed a little bit because like it's so such a huge contrast. And I don't know how to describe the music, but there is like this part where like Alex is watching like the videos and it's like World War Two Germany. And but it's like the music that's playing is kind of like I uh, I don't even know the right words. It's just like not the type of music you expect with like World War Two Germany, you know. Not, yeah. not especially even for a propaganda film, you wouldn't. And it's not technically propaganda. It's supposed to be like rehabilitating him, but it just sounds like too funny of a of a song. Like it sounds like something that you you'd hear on like a a kid's cartoon from like nineteen seventies England. You know, so yeah. that's the best way I can describe it because I. I'm not very good at describing music, but I think you might know what I'm talking about. I know, I know exactly the scene you're referring to. Um, yeah. Yeah. And what do you think it doesn't do well? The story. Um, actually, I don't even know if I necessarily hate the script because thematically it's trying to do a lot of really interesting things. This mm-hmm. is a movie about like how important is free will? Like, right. And to give some context for the listeners who haven't seen it, a big part of the movie is like, this guy is just a psychopath. This guy's just unabashedly evil. And if you had the opportunity to change him, but you basically force him into that change, is that the right thing to do? Or is that also evil? Because um, does mm-hmm. goodness come from within or is goodness forced upon you? And I think thematically, the movie doesn't pick a side which makes it a more thematically interesting movie this movie is also a lot about like the criminal justice system like is that necessary like what's the point of that and like what's the ideal version of that is it rehabilitation is it punishment how does politics interfere with that there's a lot of really interesting social and political commentary here there's just this really interesting world they've built that has both like fascist and authoritarian vibes, but also like anarchist vibes at the same time. Like it's a, it's such a fascinating world and it's trying to do so much. It's trying to talk all this stuff about the youth and juvenile delinquency, blah, blah, blah. Unfortunately, I just did not give a fuck. I'm like, like, like this, this is just a, such a intricate, layered script about a character 
who I don't find interesting. Right. About no characters I find interesting. Because it's not even just Alex. It's like, no one here has any depth. No one here has any, like, nuance to them. This this movie works as a thesis statement. As, like, a philosophical question. Like, what is the power of free will? Well, what if I put you in this example? Like, what do you think here? Mm. That's not a good movie, though. Yeah. Like, I don't feel empathy for anything that's happening here. I'm like, everyone here is fucked up. And it makes... The whole point of a movie is for me to get invested, for me to emotionally be drawn in. A movie can be super intellectual. That's fine. And I love it when they are. But I need some sort of buy-in for why I care about this intellectual exercise. Yeah. I don't get that here. It's a very cold, hateful movie, which rubs me the wrong way. Some people really like movies like that. I really don't. Yeah, I think that's... What's it called? Like, Save the Cat? Like, you had to, like, find a way for your main character to be redeemable for the audience so that... I don't even need him to be a good dude. I just need to find him interesting. Even that, it's like... Why are why should we be why should we care about this dude, you know? Yeah. He's and just evil. That's the whole thing. So I will say, like, as much as I hated the dude, I did feel bad for him a little bit when he was going for the rehabilitation. Cause I don't think that any of that should be ever be forced on upon the person, especially if they don't choose to do that. Like if someone wants to he be a better person. He does choose to do it though. But not he for ch- the reason that you think. Like the he way the reason to he do told it everyone, not knowing what he was going into. Like the reason he told everyone, like he was like reading the Bible in front of everyone else to like look like he's like trying to do better. Um, he doesn't mean it, you know, it's no. disingenuine. And so like he goes through the whole thing just because he wants to get out earlier so that he can continue to do the shit that he was doing before he was even in. And then once he goes through it, is he kind of regrets it and he can't he he can't choose for himself anymore. Like the very thought of like sex and violence like just makes him throw up. Uh, also just like the the music that he loved it makes him throw up as well because they were playing that music at the same time as they were doing the rehabilitation so it is an interesting like you said like a thesis statement like it's something that you'd present in an undergrad philosophy class you know like do you think this like if you could do good on someone if you could force good on someone do you think that's justified Uh, or even if it's not justified do you think do you think there's good in doing that and i don't it's just it just removes the whole point of of doing good like there is no good if you had to force it upon someone you don't get them a choice you know i think i think there's a lot of ways you could take the movie and i think whatever your like ethical political moral framework is you bring it into the movie right um just because the movie does not i think it does do a pretty good job of not picking a side mm-hmm. um but that also kind of frustrates me because <laughs> a movie should pick a side. It's not a documentary. Like, I'm even supposed documentaries to feel pick some- a side. Yeah, even documentaries could pick sides and are great. Um, this isn't a news article. Like, this is something I'm supposed to feel. I don't feel anything. Like, you said you felt bad for him. This dude, I didn't feel bad for him. I was like, this guy's <laughs> a piece of shit. Like, this dude. <laughs> This dude could rot, honestly. Like, he's unrepentant. He willingly throws himself into 
these awful situations. And he then, doesn't hide who he is either. Yeah, and he doesn't want to change. And it doesn't even seem like it's possible for him to change. Even when he ha- is rehabilitated, he's only... The only reason he's not committing crimes is because he physically can't. Mm-hmm. Which I think is really interesting. Like, the mind is still the same. Right. Yeah. Malcolm McDowell does a really good job. I forgot to mention, he's very good in this movie. He gives a really great performance as Alex. But despite that great performance, I don't like... I'm not having a good time with it. <laughs> not to say movies have to have you have a good right. time. Like, I'm totally... De- I love some depressing-ass like shit um this is just tough this is just hard to watch yeah basically so about the ending so like you know that the ending how like you know he's like he basically like the rehabilitation doesn't work like it just it stops like he's cured from the rehabilitation what do you think what what do you think that interpretation of final message is conveyed there i think that I actually do quite like the ending in the sense that the movie was based... It seemed like up till the ending, the movie's point was that free will is not worth it. I mean, free will is what is, is necessary. It's worth it. Like, look how fucked up his life is since he has been rehabilit- rehabilitated, right? Mm. Like he, he's lost his humanity. And then it's like, well... What if he got it back? And he's still just the same evil motherfucker. <laughs> he's still this little cretin who wants to, like, rape and murder everyone. And I'm like, so, like, it's a fun little twist on, like, oh, like, okay, you feel bad for him? We'll give you back the old version of him. And he's still the same. And he's still evil. He's still unrepentant. Um, yeah. And now he's backed up by the government. <laughs> and that makes it so much more worse. Like, yeah. Especially like when I saw like the, the gang members, like they became cops. I'm like, oh, same as it ever was. <laughs> That's legit. One of the only bits of like social commentary in the movie I thought was very, very smart. And I was like, yeah. oh, that's that actually makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was like, damn, that's like. Is that, is that, is, is that, I'm not sure if it's like, you know how people say like people predict the future and like in old media, but really they're just, well, that about, was the future. That's the past. That's the present. Past, that's going to be the future. future. Yeah. It's, that's what it is. That's like, it's just, that's commentary for what was at the time. So they, they weren't necessarily commenting on like, what's getting like a satire of the future. They were just talking about what's happening at the present. And it just so happens that like we we still have that bullshit today, so yeah. that was like the one that like really is like damn, <laughs> that's kind of fucked like, up. It, it's honestly like this movie is honestly fascinating in all the things it tries to tackle, and I feel like it pulls off a lot of them pretty well, and it's obviously well done, but I don't enjoy it because I don't think it has a point of view exactly. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's I think that's like the thing I'm trying to like say because like not to say but like trying to like twist around in my mind. But even Kubrick, when he was writing this, like he said, like in some interviews, like it, he's criticizing both like fascists and socialists. Like there, you see, like 
anarchists, not necessarily anarchists, but like anti-government people, like trying to use Alex as their like means of like going against the government. I mean, you see the fascist government as well. And he says he's just using uh, two extreme ends of the political spectrum to like uh, criticize both of them. But he doesn't have anything to say about the political spectrum himself. Like, well, what do you say? Exactly. That, that And that's what I think pisses me off in a movie. Honestly, like, if you're going to say something, say something. Like, just throwing your hands up and being like, well, both sides are bad. That, I just hate, feels boring. I hate it's that not argument. Interesting. Yeah. I hate that, like, when people say, like, oh, well, both sides are terrible. No, wait, hold on. You're just saying that because you don't actually care about enough to um, do your own thing. Like, do, not, I don't want to say do your own research, but, like, look into this shit yourself. Like, are both sides really bad or are you just lazy? And if they're bad, how bad? In what ways do you think they're bad? It's like, mm-hmm. it's it shows a lack of, like, commitment. You know, a mm-hmm. lack of actually having an opinion. And, yeah, this movie doesn't have opinions. Like, part of me respects how it's so many things, it, so many of its themes, it straddles the line. But if you straddle the line on every fucking theme, literally, it's like, what am I, what am I doing? Like, this isn't a movie. There's no viewpoint. Like, you, um, you think based off, like, what, what they did to Alex, it'd be, like, a viewpoint against fascism, you know? It'd be a viewpoint right. of, like, for um for free will or whatever but no it's like you see them you see anti-government people using him as a puppet so yeah i was conflicted with that and like, torturing li- him like literally torturing literally him. until he tried to kill himself until he tries to kill himself and i'm like this is un- this is hard i always say like one of the movie this most reminds me of actually yeah mm-hmm. i'm sure other people have drawn this comparison this movie most reminds me of um, of Joker because I feel very yes. similar ways yes. to that movie where I'm like, okay, this movie's so well done. Why do I really not like it? <laughs> <laughs> like, why am I really bothered by this movie and its lack of, I think, viewpoint? I don't. I don't think you're alone in that in that statement. Um, yeah. I think I've seen other people say the same thing. Like. 1971 is to Clockwork Orange as 2019 is to Joker or something to, along those lines. Sure. But, but, I'm not yeah. surprised other people have drawn that comparison because it, it gives me similar emotions of like, I don't like this, even though I feel like I should because it mm-hmm. is trying to do a lot and it's mostly does it well and it looks really nice and it's acted really well, but like, fuck, this movie pisses me off. But you know what Joker's going to give us that Clockwork Orange could never give us? A sequel Joaquin that's a musical. Phoenix. Oh shit! Nah, <laughs> I think we could definitely do a Clockwork Orange too. Malcolm McDowell's still alive. <laughs> All right, so I think that's pretty much everything that we can talk about. Unless yeah. is there final thoughts you have, like that you have on the film before I talk about production? I just don't. Yeah, I just don't think I like misanthropic movies that just hate everybody very much. And like, Same. you can make movies about a character like Alex. And I can really enjoy them because I enjoy movie. I enjoy a lot of movies with characters like him. But it's just how you do it. And this one just yeah. feels way too cold. After this break, we're going to talk about production. Now back from the break. So we're going to talk about a little bit about production of this film. 
So a lot went into this production. Uh, first and foremost, it was a book before it was a movie. And Anthony Burgess, the author, sold the film rights to his novel for 500 US dollars, which is equivalent to $4,800 in 2022. Uh, he sold it shortly after it was publicized uh, of their public publication. And originally, the film was projected to star the rock band The Rolling Stones, with Mick Jagger expressing interest in playing the lead role of Alex and British filmmaker Ken Russell attached to direct. However, it just didn't come to fruition due to problems with the British Board of Film Classification, and the rights ultimately fell to Kubrick. And just a little fun, I don't want to say a fun fact, this is, whenever you hear Kubrick, you usually hear like how people were hurt on set of his films. It, it didn't surprise me that um, Malcolm McDowell scratched his cornea and was temporarily blinded during like the scenes with the Ludovico technique when his eyes are like wide open with the clamps. And something I found interesting was that the doctor in the movie that was like standing next to him, dropping like the saline solution into his eyes, was a real physician presented to um who was present to prevent like any injury. But unfortunately, uh he dis he still got injured. And Malcolm cracked some ribs during the filming of the humiliation stage show i thought he was just really good at acting he is but he also got his ribs cracked during that humiliation show that is some fucked up shit no doubt and there's like a unique special effect that they use for the camera where he jumps out the window and that unique special effect is called throwing the camera out the window <laughs> so exactly and the thing is they changed it by getting a Newman Sinclair Clockwork camera in a box, lens first, and then throw, threw it from the third story of the Chorus Hotel, which is where they're filming. And to Kubrick's surprise, the camera survived six falls before the sixth one actually broke it. Which I'm surprised too. Like, but shit. <laughs> I, I don't think I could survive six falls. <laughs> the camera's steadier than me. So for the adaptation of the film... It was not initially planned by to have Kubrick because he was working on his Napoleon Bonaparte-related project, which he never got around to doing it. And so he got a copy of the book from screenplay writer Terry Southern. And then Kubrick's wife said he was excited about everything about it. And he liked the levels of political and psychological and philosophical and symbolic level. And he wrote a screenplay faithful to the novel, except for the last chapter, because he was given the American copy of the book. And the American um, copy of the book doesn't have the last chapter. And that's basically where Alex actually reforms. He realizes, oh, you know, I realize the error of my ways. You know what? I'm going to stop doing all this. I'm going to get a wife and settle down. That's the actual, like... British novel like that was published. I have published. no idea how the hell you jump from this ending to that ending in one chapter. Honestly, I think they saved the book by cutting it. <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't make sense to have that last chapter. It doesn't make sense. Oh, he's good now? Oh, it was all a dream? What? <laughs> the hell? <laughs> so, that, that, so, like, the screenplay is based off of that. He didn't know about, like, the last chapter until, like, well he he was well into like doing this film so yeah i think it, it's much better without that last chapter but as far as like reception for this movie it was met with mixed reviews 
So there are people who loved it. There are people who hated it. Vincent Canby of the New York Times praised the film, saying, quote, McDowell is as splendid as Tomorrow's Child, but it's always Mr. Kubrick's picture, which is even technically more interesting than 2001 A Space Odyssey. Among other devices, Mr. Kubrick constantly uses what I assume to be a wide-angle lens to distort space relationships with scenes so that the disconnection between lives and between people and the environment becomes an actual literal effect, unquote. So he really liked, you know, the film, the acting, he liked the use of the camera, which is stuff we praised as well. Uh, Roger Ebert gave the film two stars out of four, calling it, quote, an ideological mess, which <laughs> I, uh, I also agree. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and in her New Yorker review titled, quote, Stanley Strangelove, Pauline Kael called it a pornographic because of how it dehumanizes Alex's victims while highlighting the sufferings of the protagonist. And she derided Kubrick as a bad pornographer, noting that Billy Boy's gang extended stripping of the, the woman in the beginning of the film was, it was, it was unnecessary. It, she claimed it was offered for a titillation. I completely agree with her, actually. I don't like how the rape scenes are shot in this movie at all. I think it's you, really there's extended. a very delicate... Yeah, they're really extended, and they're shot very male gazy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, watching some of those scenes, part of me is like, is Kubrick like into this? Like, I'm disgusted, but also like the movies, the cam was not that disgusted with it. I I don't I don't right. know how to describe it, but I was uncomfortable in a way more than I think was even intended right. from those scenes, which are meant to make you uncomfortable. I uh, reason I was about to laugh because it reminds me of that joke, like the writer's not so well hidden. Typing fetish. with one hand or whatever. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and also what's his name? Sam Levinson with what's it called? Euphoria or yeah. not even Euphoria with uh, the idol. We're like, uh, what Euphoria the hell? Euphoria too, let's be real. <laughs> I think with Euphoria, there are like a lot of, People like criticize there's a lot of unnecessary nudity scenes. Like they didn't need to do that. I think Sam just wanted it to have it in there. And then with the idol, I haven't seen the idol, but I heard some criticism being like, um, what the hell was that? <laughs> like you didn't need to do yeah. all that. I, sure I, I don't like it. how I, I don't like how like the violence in this movie is like almost cartoonish. Like right. when the two gangs fight each other, it's like some kung fu movie. It's like <laughs> it's it's a joke. It's like, it's almost funny. And then the rapes in this movie are like, holy shit. They're just mm-hmm. like uncomfortable and the camera leers. It does. That's a really good way of describing it. I don't like how he shot those. I, I, you can easily make an audience uncomfortable and know what's happening without making it almost titillating i'm not a fan of it at all so yeah i think that's very good description like they said exactly what we were we were saying you know for sure so there was a british withdrawal of the film so it was passed uncut for uk cinemas uk cinemas in december 1971 but british authorities still considered the sexual violence too much like too extreme and there were some copycat crimes unfortunately, with this film. That's crazy. So in March 1972, during the trial of a 14-year-old boy accused of the manslaughter of a classmate, the prosecutor referred to a clockwork orange, suggesting that the film had a macabre relevance to the case. And 
It was also linked to the murder of an elderly man by a 16-year-old boy in Bletchley, uh, Buckinghamshire. I don't know how to say these English names. Well, anyway, he pleaded guilty after telling police that friends had told him in the film and the beating up of an old boy in the, like this one. Roger Gray for the defense told the court that the link between this crime and sensational literature, particularly A Clockwork Orange, is established beyond reasonable doubt. And the press also blamed the film for a rape in which actors sang Singing in the Rain. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. I don't and, know how anyone could watch that scene and be like, yo, that shit. Oh, God. Yeah. So Christine Kubrick, or Christiane Kubrick, Kubrick's wife, has said that the family received threats and protesters outside their home because of the film. It was finally withdrawn from British release in 1973 by Warner Brothers at the request of Kubrick. And in response to the allegations that the film was responsible for copycat violence, Kubrick stated, To try and fasten any responsibility on art as the cause of life seems to me to put the case the wrong way around. Art consists of reshaping life, but it does not create life, nor cause life. Furthermore, to attribute powerful suggestive qualities to a film is at odds with the scientifically accepted view that even after deep hypnosis at, in a post-hypnotic state, people cannot be made to do things which are allies with their natures. Which, I, I, I agree. Like, there's there's been this statement of, like, do video games cause violence? Like, this is like a decades-long debate where parents want to censor video games because they think it causes violence. And for so long, people have said, like, studies have shown, no, it really doesn't. It shows you're, you get desensitized to the violence, but it doesn't cause anything. The only thing they'll cause people to do violence is because they want to do it. Or it's just more than just, like, a black-white thing of, like, oh, this movie caused me to do it, or this video game caused me to do it. But still, it's, like, a pretty fucked-up movie, and it was pulled from release for a while. And it wasn't re-released until after his death. Kubrick's death, that yeah. is. And let's see. Some trivia found that was kind of funny. Um, according to Malcolm McDowell in the 2007 commentary track, the sped-up sex scene was originally filmed as an unbroken take lasting 28 minutes. I find that kind of funny. Especially with the That's, music that they played. Oh Yeah, they, they practically played like yakety sax. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see. And I found this funny, but like, you know what? It's I, I don't I don't put it past them. Uh, when Malcolm McDowell met Gene Kelly at a party several years later, uh, Gene Kelly turned and walked away in disgust because he was upset about the way his singing in the rain was portrayed in Clockwork Orange. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah if you've seen this movie then you you're like oh that makes sense <laughs> yeah all right so i think that's it for right now um unless any final thoughts on the film good movie bad time i guess bad movie bad time i i go back and forth bad time for sure <laughs> so that concludes our conversations today thank you so much Zach Gale, for being here uh unfortunately the film was pretty depressing to talk about. It's, but yeah, appreciate talking with you about it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So I think it goes without saying, but I, I always ask this at the end: Was *A Clockwork Orange* a hit or a miss with you? It was. It was probably a miss for me. Yeah, it was a miss for me too. A miss for me. Yeah. So where can we find you on social media? Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Zachiel 
it's I think it's underscore Marsh. Yeah, maybe it's dot Marsh. I think it's dot Marsh. <laughs> Hold on. It might be dot Marsh. Um, but that's dot. me. Zekio dot Marsh. Okay. Okay. Cool. 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 Alright, well, that's it for today, folks. You've been listening to the Hitless Podcast. This was Season 6, Episode 8. And until next time, cross off a new film from your list.